Nothing says Christmas like ZZ Top, am I right? <laughs> Welcome to Turning Point, y'all. So you probably are wondering, like, what in the world was that? Well, we are beginning this new Christmas study, and we're calling it Intros. And we're going to take a look at the introduction story of Jesus. And there's a lot of very familiar things in the introduction of Jesus' life. And whenever you're listening to the radio and uh, you hear the intro to a song, sometimes you know exactly what's coming just simply because you're familiar like with that introduction. So with that in mind, uh, here's an example. When you hear this intro... You know that one, right? Who's that? That's Prince, song 1999. You just hear the intro, and it like gives the song away. So in this intro series, as we're talking about the introduction of Jesus, there are these recognizable features. Uh, you've heard it before. You've seen it before. A manger, star, shepherds, wise men. When, when all those things start to pop up on your radar, you know it is Christmas time. But here's the thing. Tradition and time has kind of made these really phenomenal details become so familiar that we can lose some of the better insights that are available to us from the Christmas story. And so sometimes they go unheard or certainly underutilized. So this Christmas, we are putting the intro of intros back in play and my hope is we can find some fresh inspiration from these familiar details around Christmas. So once again, we're going to pause. We're going to, we're going to pause at the nativity. We're going to pause at this Christmas story and just take it in again. And may some fresh wonder kind of come over us. Maybe some greater godliness, a new level of faith, passion, building some stronger admiration for Christ as we come around Christmas again. Come on, let's get moved one more time by the introduction of Jesus. Now, as we take this first pass through the Christmas introduction, we're going to be talking about this today, challenging our expectations. Challenging our expectations. That's going to mean we might have to redefine or rethink, maybe even break open some of the boxes that our expectations try to keep God in. Because sometimes, listen, Jesus will show up in places you don't expect. And sometimes he'll use people you don't anticipate him using. And other times he'll do things that are different than what we are expecting. So today we're going to challenge some of our 
expectations. Take your Bible open with me to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to go back to that familiar telling of the Christmas story and challenge some of our expectations. Now, as I was digging into what researchers call the psychology of expectations, I discovered that, you know, whenever you have a sense of expectation, it includes both the thoughts that go in, but also the results that come out of our expectations. And as I was studying this and reading about it, I also found another term that's used quite often called going in expectations. Going in expectations. That means that you know, when we step into a, a relationship or a situation or a conversation, we, we have certain expectations going in for how we hope or believe this is going to turn out. So you hear about, you know, a new restaurant in town. And so you've heard all the buzz, and so you go and you order your food, and when it comes out, you're like, eh, eh. Going in expectations were here. Reality came in somewhere around here. Or there's a TV show or a movie that people are just, you know, always talking about, and you got to check it out, you got to watch it, and you do. And you think, eh, I didn't get it. Just wasn't for me. I didn't get it. You're, you're going in expectations are here, reality somewhere here. A few years ago, I had a chance to go to Fenway Park. It's the baseball home of the Boston Red Sox. And uh, I'd always, since I was a kid, I'd, I'd seen Boston play on TV, and I really was anticipating going to the game. And so this is the place, for me, it's kind of like Field of Dreams. You've got all these incredible past baseball players that have played their Babe Ruth played there at one time. you got Ted Williams and Carl Yaskrimski, and then you've got you know, Roger Clemens, just Hall of Fame people that have called Fenway Park like home. So my first impression whenever I went in was the fact that it's a lot smaller than it looks on TV. Like the green monster just makes it look ginormous, but I've been to a lot of baseball parks, and this one is really pretty small. And then another thing that happened is we, we made our way towards our seats and we had bought our tickets online. When you're not familiar with the nuances of a park, it's a risk when you're buying tickets online. So when we got to our seats, I was really glad that where we were sitting was not nearly as affected as the people sitting next to us who had this view for the whole game. It's like a pillar right in front of them. You're talking about dashing your expectations. Now, some of us play the game of life by lowering our expectations. Anybody else from the school of lowering your expectations? Yeah, we do that in hopes that, you know, if something is a disappointment, it won't hurt us too bad. Or we lower the expectations in hopes if we get over it even just a little bit, yay, that'll just feel great. So we lower our expectations. That's how we protect ourselves. How we protect ourselves against disappointment. Now, there's a mental health expert who suggests this. Listen to this. Very interesting. He says, a life lived with all your expectations being met is actually harmful. It'll hold you back as a person. So John Amadio writes for Psychology Today, we actually need some shortfalls and failed expectations in order to be healthier people. Well, how so? MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, did some neurological research, and they found that 
some of the expectations that people change across the course of their life will cause some rewiring to occur in the brain. There's some new neurological paths that will develop and it actually will increase your ability to make good decisions in the future. Now think of this. Where where we are in life right now is a product of the decisions that we've made in our past. And so if we want to be in a better place, we've got to learn how to make better decisions for our future. MIT's neurological studies found by challenging and changing some of our expectations, it causes the brain to fire new neurological pathways. Another way to say that is this, that by holding on to a certain set of expectations, our brains get lazy. And only by challenging some of our expectations can we awaken our minds with new levels of activity and energy. One consequence of aging is having rigid expectations. Of holding to an expectation that things have to stay the way that they've always been. Because when we know things are going to stay the same, then it's a little easier for us to know what to expect. We know what to expect. Life just feels easier, but easier isn't necessarily better. And so we may have to adapt some of our expectations. One way we can stay young is by adapting our expectations. And regardless of age, listen, I just think it's beneficial for anybody and everybody to have a little more wow in your life. Wow, didn't see that. Wow, I didn't expect that. Wow, I didn't know that was going to happen. So we all need to challenge some of our expectations. Now, the Christmas story, the Christmas story itself is a repeated challenge to our expectations. One theologian expresses it this way. He says, Jesus' birth teaches us to look for God in the unexpected. There's a common theme in the Christmas story. God's plans defy human expectations. Let's see that. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We read that the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. Verse 5, he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, listen now I read that. And while they were there, The time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in snugly strips of cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Verse 8. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel assured them, don't be afraid. 
I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you'll recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened. Verse 16, they hurried to the village. They found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in a manger. Now, that's the story we expect to hear and read at Christmas. There's a lot of familiarity in the introduction to Jesus' life, but there are a few things that may challenge us to change some expectations. One of those is what we'll call a purpose expectation, a purpose expectation, which might challenge us, listen, to rethink what we expect God to do, and because God can do some unexpected things, we have to change our purpose expectation. Now, notice the opening detail of verse 1, that a Roman emperor by the name of Augustus decreed by law a census had to be taken throughout all of the empire. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, a large section of the known world was under Roman occupation. You see that on the map. So the empire of Rome, it it imposed its presence and its rule over people who really had no interest in being part of their kingdom. Now, Rome has a notable place in history, and for that reason, a lot of people have romanticized, look at that word, romanticized a lot of things about Rome. And so we look at their culture, and there's a lot to appreciate. We look at the architecture, and we admire the functionality of so many things that the Romans came up with. And so there's this infatuation with Rome, which will cause us to not be aware that they were brutal. Rome was a totalitarian oppressor. And over the course of the the rule of Rome, they enslaved, listen to this number, 30 million people. They were brutal. The exploitation, the terrorism that was inflicted by the Romans brought about unspeakable human rights violations. But we forget about that. And we're kind of so removed from it that there's even no hesitation about making our sports team's mascot a Roman soldier. But imagine if today you were to name your T-ball team the Al-Qaeda Bombers or that your school's new mascot is going to be the MS-13 Raiders 
We, we would never want to legitimize the, the, the terror and horror caused by a terrorist group or by a gang. So listen, time has distanced us from the offense of Rome. Their presence was just a reminder of brutality. Now, the census that's referred to in Luke chapter 2 was ordered by the Emperor Augustus, and the reason for it was to be able to know where people are and to be able to track them, but more importantly, to monetize their existence through taxation. They, they wanted to squeeze every dollar out of these people so that they could have the funds necessary to run their kingdom. Now, Jewish people at this time were all praying a prayer. At the time of the birth of Christ, the nation was praying a prayer, a prayer that was born out of prophetic hopes. Because in the Old Testament, there is a, there is a, a, a promise of having a Messiah, a leader who could come, who would throw off their oppressors and bring liberty to Israel, so that they might enjoy all the prosperity and peace promised in those prophecies. And so people prayed, Lord, send us our deliverer. Send us our Messiah. And those prayers were expecting God to do something specific. Show up with a leader who can throw off all of our oppression. That's what they expected. 30 years after Jesus' birth, as Christ is doing his ministry, he made it very clear that their expectation of what they thought God should be doing would not be what he was doing. Jesus made this very blunt statement to a Roman official. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. The order and the function of my kingdom is altogether different than anything you expect or anyone else is expecting. In fact, his first mission on earth, Jesus prioritized, listen to this, the spiritual over the physical. He prioritized the eternal over the temporary. He prioritized, listen, the forgiveness of sin and the rebirth of a person to eternal life. That's his priority. Mark chapter 10, Jesus clarified, the Son of Man, look at this, came to give his life as a ransom for many. That means he, he came with the purpose of paying our sin debt. First John 3.8 emphatically clarifies that Jesus' appearance on earth was to destroy the work of the devil in our lives. Now, let me remind you that there is coming a time when Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, he will fulfill the hope spoken by Isaiah the prophet that the government will be upon his shoulders. That means when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things new. He's going to restore the earth. 
He's going to bring his rule and his reign over the earth and over its people. Jesus will return. But for now, his priority is on what is eternal over what is temporary. And for what is spirit over flesh. So some of us may have to change some of our expectations. That what we're expecting God will do may not be what he's doing. Now I get feeling frustrated with the way things are. That there's a sense of you know, regretting like the course of the culture. There's even a sense of dissatisfaction over the way present governments are operating. So I get it, man. There are things I don't like. But my expectations of what God should be doing, like in politics, for example, falls short of what God is actually doing. Who has prioritized the spirit over the flesh. See, he loves the world rather than despising it. He wants to save it rather than condemn it. That means what he is doing right now. He's working to deliver people out of LGBTQ2 and whatever else you want to add to that. he's, He's trying to reach them rather than denounce them. God is seeking to save progressives and conservatives. So what we shame, listen, what we might despise, what we might expect God to be doing in the filthy margins of life may not be what he's doing at all. Because like the intro to Jesus' life, God works in unexpected ways. Isaiah 55, 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. So can we say this Christmas, God help us to change a sense of our expectations. Where we appreciate, listen, what God is doing rather than what we think he should be doing. Spirit over flesh, eternal over temporary. A couple of weeks ago when I was teaching, I gave you kind of an after the sermon assignment. Many of you liked that. So let me give you another one. On the screen, you're going to see a QR code, a place where you can go and watch about a 10-minute video. This is a depiction, a characterization of the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And the way it brings it together, it really highlights this whole idea that God may be doing a different thing than we expect. Sometimes we have to change our expectations. Another place we may have to be challenged and change our expectations is, listen, with place expectations. Place expectations. 
Jesus' intro shows us to look for God sometimes in unexpected places. For example, Bethlehem. Joseph, as a descendant of David, had to go to his family's ancestral home to register for the census. So he had to go to Bethlehem, verse 6. And while they were there, while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. Now, up to this point, the only notable thing that had ever happened in Bethlehem was the fact that it was David's hometown, but that didn't mean much for the community. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been driving and you pass through some little dinky town and on the outskirts of that town is a sign and the sign kind of has this promotion like the hometown of and you see that and your first thought is like, how in the world did anybody get discovered in this remote, irrelevant location? Then as you drive through the town, you may be struck by this, like, that person is like a successful entertainer. They're an, they're an athlete. They're an influencer in government. Like, why are they letting their town be such a dump? Because you see buildings that are abandoned and windows that are broken out. And you, like, why don't they do more with their own hometown? They're proud of him. Why doesn't he get proud of them? Why don't they do something? It's a dump. That was Bethlehem. Don't let the postcards at Christmas time fool you. Bethlehem had become a slum six miles south of the capital city. David was a wealthy man, but he put all of his wealth to work in Jerusalem. None of it for Bethlehem. Nobody wanted to go to Bethlehem unless you had to, and Joseph and Mary had to, and so it was while they were there that the Savior was born, the Messiah, the Lord. That's not where we would expect. We would expect him to be born in the capital, in Jerusalem, in a palace, maybe even a temple. But the intro reminds us you got to look for God in unexpected places. Here's another feature of that, the manger. The manger. Verse 7 says she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in these snuggly strips of cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available. Now, maybe we expect this manger scene to be a, like a warm, quaint little stable with this little wooden, you know, contraption with hay coming out, like this cute little bassinet with warm, fuzzy animals all around. Maybe that's what we expect when we think of the nativity because that's what we have in our Christmas decorations, right? Truth is, that whole scenario didn't even exist until 1223 A.D. when St. Francis of Assisi decided that he wanted to put on a Christmas pageant. Because listen, historians have always known there's only two options for the manger scene. The first one is a cave. The, the word for lodging in that verse is cataluma. What cataluma can mean is like an open air rest stop. And so sometimes people would go on these open air rest stops and their animals that they're traveling with would be parked over in a cave for safe keeping. Now, this is not the bat cave 
with like cool lighting and fun gadgets. This is a creepy, weird cave where there's just things back in the darkness that you don't know what that is. And there's spiders walking on the wall and it's dank and it's cold. And the, the manger is actually a rock that's been hewed out. It's a feeding trough for animals to eat or drink in. That's one of your manger options. The second one is it could have been a pet corner in a peasant's house. A pet corner in a peasant's house. Again, the word cataluma, the word for lodging. It also is translated as a guest room as it is in Luke chapter 22, verse 11. So peasant homes in Bethlehem at the time were constructed by stacking rock and there was a designated corner of this little rock house where you would put animals for the night. So this is one of those houses actually excavated in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. But animals would just go in this little pet corner because you didn't want your animals stolen overnight. And so it could be that where Jesus is born is in a pet corner in a poor person's house. Now, Matthew may have given us a clue about this. You remember he records the detail about magi, wise men coming to see Jesus. So and so we read this. When they saw the star that had guided them to Bethlehem, they were excited. It went ahead of them. It stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Verse 11, they entered the house. They entered the house where Jesus was. So maybe Jesus was born in the pet corner of a poor person's house. Now that's probably not the place where you would want Jesus to be born. If you're to welcome Jesus into your house to be born, you wouldn't pick the laundry room next to the kitty litter box. But sometimes God shows up in places we don't expect. Another one, the shepherd's field. Shepherd's field. People would expect angels, God's messengers, and the glory of the Lord to be visibly present a few miles up the road in Jerusalem at the temple. Nobody was looking for the glory of the Lord and angels to appear in a sheep field. That's too ordinary. That's a workplace. And yet that's where they can be found. Because remember, God sometimes shows up in unexpected places. Here's the last one. People expectations. We may have to change our people expectations. The intro shows us that God, listen, can work through people we don't expect him to use. So let's think of the normal cast of characters that are in the Christmas story. You've got Mary. What about Mary? Well, she's an unwed pregnant teenager. 
Now, I know there's a miraculous work behind her conception. And I don't want to take anything away. We're going to talk more about that next week. But to anybody who was looking in the moment, they didn't have the understanding of that. They just saw her as an unmarried, pregnant teenager. And then there's this young man named Joseph who the Bible tells us had an incredible reputation. He was a righteous man. That means that he followed the law meticulously. But when he chose not to divorce his engaged bride, but to stay with her, he lost his reputation. In fact, he lost his reputation for so long that when Jesus came back to his hometown during his days of ministry, the people greeted Jesus by referring to his father Joseph in a way that they couldn't even speak his name. Oh, you're the carpenter's son. God couldn't use somebody who's lost their reputation. And yet, Find shepherds. You've seen a show probably called Dirty Jobs. Jobs people don't want to do. There's some people that'll do it. Shepherding was one of those. These were expendable people because after all, it's a dangerous job. David said he took down lions and bears that were trying to steal his sheep. It would be, you know, shepherding, you could lose your life doing that. God doesn't use expendable people. And yet... And then there are these wise men we're going to talk about in week three. Who are they? Unsaved government workers. How could that be? But oh, it be. Because God sometimes uses people we don't expect. So this Christmas, we may have to come before the nativity and just recognize there might be some things that need to change in terms of what we expect because God can do, listen, unexpected things different than we anticipate. And so I would ask you, are you expecting God to do something that prioritizes the temporary over the eternal? Are you expecting God to just bend in a direction of always taking care of the flesh but not prioritizing the spirit? You may have to change your expectations. How about this one? Jesus can show up in unexpected places. Are there places in your life that you don't expect or imagine seeing God show up. I've been talking with somebody this week who's going through a painful divorce. And here's the amazing thing. As painful and difficult as it is, God is showing up in my divorce. God will show up in unexpected places. And God will use unexpected people. God can use people we would never imagine. He can even use a Democrat. We may have to change our expectations.